0: morning church happy fall back day for those of you who don't have kids in the house through gritted teeth I want to congratulate you on your extra hour of sleep it's okay for the more sanctified among us we use that extra hour for prayer and for family worship and if by prayer and family worship you mean praying that the kids would go back to sleep and if by family worship you mean yelling at them to leave you alone, then, then we're on the same page. In all seriousness, I hate daylight savings with a burning passion. <laughs> but I love you all, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning to spend some time in God's Word. So let's dive into our text and get started. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah 62. We're going to read the whole chapter quickly. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married." For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm I will not again give your grain to to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary go through go through the gates prepare the way for the people build up build up the highway clear it of stones lift up a signal over the peoples behold The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Let's pray. Father, we've come here, we've sung songs in praise of you. We have confessed our sins to you. We have lifted up our own needs and the needs of brothers and sisters around the world to you. God, you are faithful. You are capable of meeting all of our needs. and We pray as we go through this text, as we work through Isaiah 62, that you would meet us here, that you would work in our hearts and minds to reveal truth to us, and that you would convict us to go out and apply that truth in our lives. Help us to love you. Help us to love others for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure we all have this in common, but I've been to a lot of weddings over the years. Most of them have been in churches. Some of them have been in barns. I even officiated a wedding once that was in the lobby of an office building. And admittedly, it was a really, really nice office building. And While the locations of these dozens of weddings that I've been to have varied, those weddings all shared several traits. In each of them, there was a crowd of witnesses there to see the wedding, there was a bridegroom, and there was a bride. And no matter how long or how short the ceremony, they all ended with a presentation with the officiant saying to the crowd of witnesses, I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. such and such. Well, we're going to see a wedding this morning in Isaiah 62. It's going to paint a picture for us of a wedding unlike any of us have attended. A wedding not between a man and a woman, but a wedding between the God of the universe and his people. And so if I have to come up with a title, and I do because they put it on the podcast, I'm completely unoriginal. A couple of months ago I preached a sermon called The Trial of All Eternity, so we're just going to call this one The Wedding of of all eternity. So if you need to put something in your notes and uh, for the podcast, it will be called The Wedding of All Eternity. So let's look, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Who is it that's speaking here? Who is the I? Well, the person who is speaking here is the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel, and you'll remember that earlier in Isaiah, there were four servant songs, four passages about the promised Messiah, who I think by now we've established is Jesus of Nazareth. And remember, we call him Jesus Christ, not because Christ is his last name, but because Christ is a title. It can mean Savior, it can mean Messiah, but the straightforward translation of the Greek word for Christ is simply anointed, or anointed one. There are four songs later in Isaiah referred to as the songs of the anointed one. We're actually in the third one today. So the person speaking here in verse one, the person who can't keep silent is the servant, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He mentions Zion and Jerusalem, and he's using those interchangeably here, and he's saying, for the sake of my people, I will not be silent until what? Until what happens? Until my people's righteousness goes forth and her salvation is seen. The Messiah is saying that he will not stop, he will not rest until his people are saved. So point one of the sermon, point one, the bridegroom adorns his bride with salvation.
1: The bridegroom
0: adorns his bride with salvation. We see this here, the bridegroom, Jesus, the Messiah, he's not going to rest until his people, the bride, are adorned, dressed, covered in salvation. Look in verse 2. When God's people are adorned in salvation, the nations shall see our righteousness and all the kings our glory, and we shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. When I save you, the Messiah says, something else is going to happen. You'll be made righteous. My people, my bride will be made righteous, and nations will see my bride. Her righteousness, her glory. Kings will be in awe. The change is going to be obvious to all who see it. Further, we, the people of God, we will have a new name. And traditionally, when a woman gets married, she gets a new name. The bride of Christ here, God's people, we get a new name. But this is so much more than just a name change. You often hear of wealthy people. Uh, or people who marry into wealth, say, derogatorily said that they marry into money. But when you marry into a wealthy family, you should get some of that wealth, right? Not just the name change. When we marry into the family of God... When he saves us and makes us his people, we get a new name, but we get all of the privileges afforded to the sons and the daughters of God. So much more than just a name. Christians are not Christians in name only. We are adorned in salvation and we are clothed in righteousness. Verse 3 We, God's people, "...shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of our God." In chapter 61, verse 10, Isaiah uses a similar picture to make the same point. In that chapter, we see a bride adorned in jewels, and here we get a bride adorned with a crown. Well, what does a crown symbolize? Symbolizes, symbolizes royalty. So our bridegroom is the king of the universe. We, his people, are adorned with a crown as a glory to who? To him, to the king. God's people will be a sign that Jesus is Lord and that our God is king. So point one, the bridegroom adorns his bride with salvation. Point two, the bridegroom transforms his bride with salvation. Verses 1 and 3 were stated positively. What What is that going to mean for us in a positive sense? But there's a, there's a negative aspect to this as well. We see that we get a crown, a new name, but what was our old name? What is it being changed from? What are we being saved from? Verse 4, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. In the immediate context of this passage, Isaiah is foreshadowing. He's prophesying about what's about to happen to God's people. They're about to be decimated. Their lands going to be taken, their temple destroyed. They will be forsaken, desolate. Isaiah is telling people both that this is going to happen and that it will not it's not ultimately going to last. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. That's the immediate Context. But as with most prophecy, there's a more distant context as well. And in preparing for this, I read some people who said, you know, this is a helpful reminder to the church today that regardless of your circumstances, one day everything will be fine. And I think that's absolutely right, especially when we hear about the testimony of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan who are suffering. This is a hope to them that that's suffering. Those circumstances are not going to last. I think there's something else here as well. We, in our sin, are all forsaken and desolate. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but there's hope. For those of us adorned with salvation, we are transformed, transformed from forsaken, desolate sinners to be called look in the second half of verse 4, to be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. The bridegroom marries his bride and the bride is no longer forsaken. So Christ adorns his bride with salvation and transforms his bride to be rejoiced over. Let's stop. For just a second and think about that. The Lord delights in you. The Lord delights in you. Do you understand that, Christian? You say, sure, yeah, I, I get that. God delights in us. But do you really believe that? Or do you just live as if God tolerates you? Does God say, well, Richard's really kind of a jerk, and he messes up a lot, but, you know, he put his faith in Jesus, so I guess I have to take him in. Is that how God sees us? Do we look at God in shame and assume that he really doesn't love us or like us but has to accept us because we prayed some magic prayer? No. That's not God. God delights us in you he rejoices over his people we see this throughout scripture zephaniah 3:17 he will rejoice over you with gladness psalm 147:11 the lord takes pleasure in those who fear him romans 2:29 our praise is not from man but from god he praises us but why why does god rejoice in us. Why does God delight in his people? John Piper says, and, and I think this is right, what God delights in about us is that we delight in him. He is the God of the universe. He deserves all praise and glory and delight from his people. To this point, just as the Bible tells us that God delights in us, it tells us that we're to delight. In Him. Psalm 37 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Romans 5 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God delights in us because we delight in Him. We see a picture of this right here in Isaiah 62. Read verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We live in a fallen world, and so I don't want to make assumptions about marriages. Not every husband rejoices over his wife, and not every wife rejoices over her husband. Okay, no amens. We're safe. Good. what I can speak to though is my own marriage and I can also speak to the way that I think things ought to be. The bride is supposed to delight in her bridegroom and the bridegroom is supposed to delight in his bride. In church, I delight in my wife. Why? She's beautiful. She makes me laugh. She loves our kids. She's a good cook. She likes the same movies I like. We have other similar interests. And she loves Jesus. But if I'm being perfectly honest, do you know what I love most about her? It's that she loves me. When I proposed, she said yes. I did it in a really public place, so I thought, well, maybe it was the pressure of the crowd she didn't feel like she could say no. But in all seriousness, from the time we started dating to when we got married and during the engagement, I kept thinking to myself, at some point, she's going to wake up and come to her senses. <laughs> but she didn't. And here we are, many, many years and two kids later. And on my wedding day and many times since, I have thought to myself, I can't believe that she chose me. I rejoice in her because she rejoices in me because she chose me. Now, certainly, I don't have marriage all figured out, but I do know one thing. I think that marriage should consist of a man rejoicing in his wife and a wife rejoicing in her husband. Your relationship with God should consist in you rejoicing in God and God rejoicing in you. That's how it's supposed to be. The bridegroom rejoices over his bride and just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God rejoices in us because we rejoice in Him. He chose us. He called us his people, We should thank God and praise God that he chose us when there was nothing in us worthy of being chosen. We were desolate. We were forsaken. God transforms his people. The bridegroom adorns his bride with salvation. And just as we were dead in our trespasses... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. He transforms us that we might rejoice in him so that he might rejoice in us. Point three. The bridegroom prepares and protects his bride. Read verse six. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. Who are the watchmen here? Well, there are different interpretations of this. It could be prophets of the Old Testament. uh, It could be pastors. It could even be the people of God in general. So we're going to very quickly look at all three. What did the prophets do? They spoke the word of God to God's people. They condemned sin and they called God's people to repentance. Ezekiel 14:6. Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. They proclaimed judgment. The prophet Micah, chapter 2, verse 3. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. They proclaimed the gospel. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. The prophets proclaimed the word of God, and God acted as watchman and acted as watchman over God's people, heralding the coming of the bridegroom. What do pastors do? They proclaim the word of God to God's people. One of the qualifications of pastors found in First Timothy chapter three verse two is that they be able to teach. We're not talking about trigonometry here. He's saying that pastors should be able to teach and preach the word of God in the church to God's people. Pastors guard the doctrinal fidelity of the church and cry out to God in prayer on behalf of church members. And they act as watchmen over the church, heralding the coming of the bridegroom. What do God's people do? We love and proclaim the word to our families, to our neighbors, to a lost and dying world that's all around us. 1 Peter three fifteen: in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us believers act as watchmen over the world seeking over the word excuse me seeking opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those in need and we herald the coming of the bridegroom so the watchmen could be prophets pastors people of god personally i think it's all of the above because what's the common theme the common theme is the word of god the Word of God is the watchtower, and we, regardless as our office uh, of our office as prophet, pastor, or person in the church, we are the watchmen taking shifts. We are people of the Word. We had Bible study this morning. We're digging into the Word now. Normally we have Bible study on Sunday night. My home group is having a Bible study uh, someday this week. We tweet out... Bible readings every single day. Why? Because we are people of the Word. We all live by and proclaim the Word of God, which heralds the coming of the bridegroom. Look at the second part of verse 6 and then verse 7. We watchmen are those who put the Lord in remembrance. We're to take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is a wonderful verse. We are called to give the Lord no rest. We are called to relentlessly call upon the Lord for his help. We see this in other places in Scripture, too. We see Moses plead with the Lord on behalf of God's people in Exodus 32. God's people made the golden calf and they worshipped it. They gave this idol credit for having freed them from the Egyptians. So the people have committed idolatry. They've taken the Lord's name in vain. They've sinned against God, and God justly seeks to judge them for their sin. He says, I'm done with them. I'm taking them out, and I'm starting over. But look what Moses says to God. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, "Oh Lord, "'Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth?' Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. Moses did what we are called to do. We're called to put the Lord in remembrance. Remembrance of what? His own promises. Moses said, God, you made a promise to Abraham. What will people say about you if you destroy your people? Moses' concern isn't about the people, his concern is that the name of the Lord be hallowed and that God's promises are kept and Harold, We do this all the time in the responsive readings that we read, in the songs that we sing, in the sermons that we preach, in the prayers that we preach. We are putting the Lord in remembrance. And guess what? When we do that, we're putting ourselves in remembrance as well. We're called to put the Lord in remembrance. We're called to do it without rest. This reminds me of Luke 18, And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus repeats twice that the judge neither feared God nor respected man. Why? To say, if this unrighteous judge will answer your petitions, how much more will a good God... And why did he tell them this parable? Well, we don't, we don't have to guess. Luke tells us in verse 1 of chapter 18. Jesus told them the parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's for our own encouragement. We are to put God in remembrance, to take no rest, to give him no rest. In a, in a sense, Scripture is saying to us, the bride... Pester your bridegroom. Don't leave him alone. Relentlessly pray to your bridegroom. The watchmen are to diligently and relentlessly cry out to our God, watching and waiting for his coming. The bridegroom prepares his bride. The bridegroom also protects his bride. Look in verse 8. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by his mighty arm I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. God will protect his people. His right hand and his mighty arm here refer to his power and his will. God is capable and willing to protect his people. No longer will God's people be pillaged by surrounding nations or persecuted by an unbelieving world wrongs will be made right and justice will be in full effect. Isaiah here is using the language of covenant blessings. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's banking on and hearkening back to God's promises to his people. The same promises that Moses rested on in Exodus, which we read a minute ago, the same promises that are echoed throughout all of Scripture, Isaiah is leaning on those to encourage God's people to say, ultimately, we will prevail. And I don't know um, that this always gets hammered home in our context as compared to believers Throughout history and compared to believers in other parts of the world. We see with our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. We have it pretty easy. But whatever our circumstances are. And as we pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the globe. We can be encouraged by the reality that our suffering and hardship will one day come to an end. The bridegroom will protect his bride. Verse 9. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God's people will enjoy the harvest. We will enjoy the feast. That's where we're headed. But the here and now is preparation. The bridegroom prepares his bride. Verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal, over the peoples. In some respects, this is a really grim picture because remember, Isaiah is also prophesying in this chapter about the Babylonian exile. I think Tim mentioned that last week. So part of what he's doing here is painting a near-term picture for his people of their road to exile. He's saying, you're going to go out of the gates of your city and into a foreign land and into exile. But the long-term picture is exactly the opposite. We who are now exiles will enter into the gates of the kingdom of heaven. We who are now aliens in a strange land will return home. But on our journey, we have a job. And this is strange. We're not just called to travel on the highway. We're called to build it. We're called to clear it. We're called to fill in the potholes as we go. Why? to prepare a way. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Beautiful, familiar verses. The Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are to pave the way for others to follow along, and we are to lift a signal over the people. A signal Pointing them to God. We build the road by sharing the gospel. We are taking people with us to the wedding, raising a banner, raising a signal. When I got engaged, I was so excited. The day after I got engaged, I was driving down the road on uh, my college campus and I looked over on the sidewalk, and I saw a girl that I knew from high school. You have to understand, my college was far enough away from where I grew up that not a ton of people that I grew up with went to my college. There were just a handful of us. But I saw her, and I rolled down my window, and I just blurted out, I'm engaged. And I didn't even know her very well, but I was so excited about the good news that I had to... Amber's like, oh gosh. Um, I was so excited about this good news that I had to share that I couldn't contain myself. As great as that news was, the good news of Jesus Christ is so much better. And we're called to spread that news, to raise it as a signal over the people. Verse 11. What do we say? What do we proclaim? Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The bridegroom is coming. I'm engaged and the wedding is drawing near. Salvation is coming. And when the bridegroom returns, what a day that will be. Look at verse 12. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. A holy people redeemed, sought out, or envied. When the bridegroom returns, the wedding will commence and we, the people of God, the bride will ultimately be Saved, We will receive a new name. There will be no doubt to whom we belong. This analogy, um, that of the bridegroom, the bride and the bridegroom, is so helpful. It's all over Scripture. Here in Isaiah 62, obviously, in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about marriage, he compares Christ to the bridegroom and the church universal, God's people, to the bride. But in order to understand just how appropriate this analogy is, I think we need to have a better understanding of weddings and marriage in the ancient Near East. So please just indulge me for a minute. Folks back in Isaiah, and even in Jesus' day, for them, engagement wasn't like it is now. See, the bride was betrothed to the bridegroom, but betrothal in their culture was much more significant than engagement in our culture. For us, you can get engaged, not have a real plan to get married. You can get engaged and you can break it off. It's not that big of a deal. But back then, if a woman was betrothed to her intended, she was considered a wife. She was considered already married. Betrothal was as binding as marriage. The commitment level was the same. And I point this out because I feel like it crystallizes this picture of Christ as bridegroom and the church as bride. Because you see, right now, believers, we're betrothed. We are spoken for. Christ is fully committed to his bride, his people. But the wedding hasn't happened yet. Last week, Tim spoke of this idea of the already, but not yet. The already is that Christ has already come and done his saving work by dying on the cross, by being resurrected, but he hasn't yet come in full to redeem his people. We, God's people, the church, are already betrothed. We are spoken for, but we are not yet married. The betrothal, the engagement, it cannot be broken off. The wedding is coming. The bridegroom will adorn his bride with salvation and righteousness. He will transform us. And right now, while we're still betrothed, he's protecting us and preparing us and making sure that we make our way to the altar. What are we doing on the way? We're proclaiming the glory of our bridegroom. We're saying to anyone who will listen, we're engaged. Come join us at the wedding. And we're not just inviting people to the wedding. We're saying, hey, come be brides with us. Those who are just attending the wedding, you don't want to be one of them. You've heard the phrase, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, that's really bad news. If you're not the bride, you are forsaken. You are desolate. You are judged and condemned to an eternity in hell. Everyone who exists will be at this wedding, but only the bride and the bridegroom will stay for the honeymoon. So, believers, fellow betrothed. It's our job to invite as many people to get married as we possibly can. Are you doing that? Are you rejoicing in your bridegroom as your bridegroom rejoices in you? Are you proclaiming his glory as a signal that others might see? For those here if there are any who don't believe, do you want this? You've heard about this bridegroom, this loving Savior. You've heard me say, He's coming. He's coming. Hear those words again. Heed the call to the wedding. Put your faith and hope and trust in the only one who can save you from your sin the Bridegroom, the Savior of the world, Jesus. Let's pray.